Is that recording? Oh yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Yes, so, it is. So, <laughs> hi. So hi, hi everyone, and welcome to the Society for the History of Children and Youth podcast. My name is Christine Alexander, and I teach in the history department at the University of Lethbridge in Blackfoot Territory, Southern Alberta. And I'm thrilled to be bringing you a double header today uh, as far as our book features. Um, I'm going to be in conversation with Mashid Mayar and Catherine LaRochelle. So each of these scholars has a new award-winning book that I would say is makes a really important contribution to our understandings of how education, formal schooling, informal education, childhood, how we actually can't understand them without thinking about the history of racism, colonialism, geographic imaginaries. So uh, yeah, and I I read these two books um, a few months ago, loved them, and thought that I would like nothing more than to have the opportunity to bring these two authors together to talk about their work and the many ways in which, uh, yeah, I think that there are some really interesting connections here and hope that you'll enjoy listening to our conversation. So um, I'm going to just briefly introduce each of them. Um, So first up, uh, we've got Catherine LaRochelle, who is a professor in the history department at l'Université de Montréal, and she is the author of L'école du racisme, la construction de la territé à l'école québécoise entre 1830 et 1915, which was published by the Press de l'Université de Montréal in 2021. And for all of the Anglophones out there, I'm thrilled to let you know that it's going to be published in English as School of Racism, A Canadian History, 1830 to 1915 by the University of Manitoba Press in just a few months time, I think. Yes. Fantastic. So L'École du Racisme was awarded the Prix Lionel Grou uh, by l'Institut d'Histoire de l'Amérique Française, the Canadian History of Education Association Founders Prize for Best French Language Book, as well as the Canadian Historical Association's Clio Prize for Quebec History. So joining Catherine and I today uh, is Mashid Mayar, who is a postdoctoral researcher and lecturer in American literature and culture at the University of Cologne in Germany. And Mashid's book is entitled Citizens and Rulers of the World, the American Child and the Cartographic Pedagogies of Empire. And this was published by University of North Carolina Press last year in 2022. And it was recently awarded the American Studies Association's Shelley Fisher Fishkin Prize for original research in transnational American studies. So congratulations to both of you you. for these uh, well-deserved honors and thank you for joining us today. So before I ask you to talk about um, your book projects, I'm hoping that you, each of you will be able to tell us just a little bit about your scholarly backgrounds more generally, um, as well as how you came to be interested in the history of childhood and, and or the history of education. Catherine, do you want to go first? Yes, I can. Uh, sure. Um, my, my story is uh, a story of uh, shifting uh, plans. <laughs> so I enrolled uh, in university first to become a journalist in the Middle East. So I took a minor in Arabic language and studies. 
And during my undergraduate degree, I took several historic courses, including Quebec historics. And that's when I became interested uh, in, uh, in archives and just um, in history as well. Like I, I understood that history could be so much complicated and nuanced. Uh, and so I shifted <laughs> towards history. And for my master's uh, thesis, I focused on the representations of the Arab world in Quebec school mm -hmm. textbooks during 19th and 20th centuries, uh, because it was a period uh, in Quebec, uh, like in the late uh, 2000s, uh, we, have, we had many conversations about um, accommodation for religious uh, groups and cultural groups and there were there was uh, this big um, commission uh, public commission to talk about that and I heard many citizens uh, say so much stereotypes about uh, you know Muslims and I wasn't uh, satisfied with the <laughs> the explanation that it was just the 9/11. Uh, uh, impact. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to check in uh, in the past uh, where this those stereotypes come from when Quebec was, um, you know, uh, have come in in uh, contact with some representations of the Arab world. World. So it was then that I saw the story of the education as a good way to research national construction uh, through the lens of otherness. And as for the history of childhood, it came a little bit uh, later. Uh, I became really interested and kind of discovered this uh, field uh, towards the end of my doctoral thesis when I wrote the chapter on uh, missionary mobilization and the history of emotions. That's when I, I became aware of this fantastic field that is uh, the history of childhood and children. Thanks so much, Catherine. And I will just say, having just refamiliarized myself with your book, one of the things that I love that you do in the very last couple of pages of your monograph is place yourself and your own yeah. history uh, in as <laughs> a white woman who had never really, you know, been a, who had never really thought about whiteness yeah. until you were taking these history courses and your ambition, your initial ambition to be a journalist mm -hmm. and to study yeah. the Middle East and and sort of zooming out and seeing it as part of uh, a part of uh, this longer uh, history. history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I, I, I'm the product of this yes. history, this yes. uh, white saviorism, mm -hmm. this white woman's saviorism. Yeah, exactly. yes. Yeah, just fantastic. Thank you. Mashid, over to you. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, and I guess my, my um, story of how I arrived at say, historical childhood studies and empire is a slightly less fantastic uh, than what uh, Catherine was talking about. So bear with me. Um, well, um, I guess it's now more than a decade and a half that I have been fascinated with the idea of empire and how empires in general, but of course, a US empire in particular, sustain themselves over time. Uh, how is it that um, some end earlier than others, some actually last for centuries or just a mere uh, number of years? And uh, um, these um, 
tactics to sustain or fail to sustain themselves brought me to think more closely about um, generations, the idea of um, handing down um, some kind of a um, benevolent, acceptable understanding of empire to the next generation and making it palatable, making it digestible. And I think that was uh, really important and fascinating for me to then think of um, generations as not only um, what adults produce and give to children, but also how children become part of this conversation. And that's why also I, I ultimately wrote a book that is as much about what American adults gave to children as it is about what children gave to, um, gave back um, in thinking about playing with the idea of empire. So this um, project of making empires palatable and digestible for the next generation was um, at the heart of uh, my project from the beginning of the PhD years. Um, so back in uh, 2010, but it wasn't specifically about childhood yet. Before I had this co wonderful conversation with um, Amy Kaplan, who's not among us anymore. And uh, she asked me if I am going to include school books. And uh, that was the moment that I thought like, hmm, there is something here, but I'm not sure about it, especially because in my department, no one was looking at childhood. And that meant a lot of convincing people that children are actually worth looking at from a historical perspective that, and all the conversations that come with it, uh, quote unquote, agency and uh, historical presence, et cetera, et cetera. But then from another perspective also, other than how empires become um, palatable and are made fun for children so that they, they can actually um, live with the idea and promise of empire. What was really interesting and important for me as a non-American, non-European Americanist was how Americans at the end of the 19th century were looking at the world and what terms they were understanding their own place in that world and what it meant to be in that world. Because I am part of that world. I am part of non-American world, actually. And I was really, really interested in seeing what kind of views Americans had of the non-American world as the U.S. empire was expanding globally. And also um, how these views were shaped, what factors came in, what kind of mental maps people had um, of the um, larger world and their own place in it, and also how they then um, presented that. So bringing childhood in conversation with this idea of the United States in the larger world ultimately resulted in um, me looking at a different archive than I ultimately uh, began with. So I was looking at um, periodicals, but periodicals that addressed adults. And then after a few months um, into my PhD time, I shifted specifically to childhood. And that meant digitizing sources and going to the Library of Congress, taking photos, cameras broken, and so on. And uh, um, yeah, ultimately, one of the main questions of my project became, where in the world is America? What kind of relationship does the United States have with the rest of the world? So I guess that's how it began, actually. Fantastic. Thank you. And I just can't stop. So there's, for those of, well, you'll have to imagine people listening to us, but there's lots of enthusiastic nodding happening over here on the Zoom call. And um, I just think that you're too, that you're 
studies speak to each other in such compelling ways. So um, the, yeah, so thank you. I guess before we get into, you know, the more, the kind of nitty gritty of what your books are about, um, thinking of the kind of broad range of intellectual geographical backgrounds that readers will bring to this, uh, listeners, I should say, to our conversation today, I'm wondering if you could set the scene each of you by telling us a little bit more. I think, Mashid, you are leading us there beautifully um, by telling us a bit more about the United States and the American empire in the late 19th century. And in the case of Catherine, um, about Quebec or French Canada, as well as Canada more broadly, I would say, between you know the 1830s and the early 20th century. So, Machine? Yeah, gladly. Uh, yeah. yeah, of course. Um, um, I, I guess I kind of gestured toward this idea of um, the, the U.S. empire in the world and being aware of what it meant and what kind of repercussions it had for the empire to expand globally at the end of the 19th century. So there's massive knowledge on U.S. empire and all the um, um, linguistic conflict around can we call the US an empire has it ever had or been an empire etc cetera, etc cetera. but um i decided to set that aside and think about uh, the united states as an empire and uh, um in a very particular understanding and that is um i began to think about the us empire um in the 1890s and beyond um as a spatially unsettled empire because it was expanding and that meant a lot of new spaces that the, the americans at this point in time came in um, contact with and a lot of spaces that um they didn't know how to internalize how to um, write into the fabric of the nation. So there was a lot of spatial confusion at this point in time, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. And that means that um, geography became one of the key um, features of thinking about this historical moment as Americans lived it, basically. Uh, in the 1890s. And what happened was that um, there was an urge inevitably to produce new geographic knowledge for adults, but also for children, for the sake of an empire that hoped to sustain itself over the course of a number of generations. And uh, um, my book is then basically about this semantic career of geography when we think about an empire that uh, is trying to come to terms with the confusion, the spatial confusion that results from going from less than 1 million square miles uh, in 1800 to over 3 million square miles uh, by 1900. And all the different languages, cultures, geographies um, that um, are brought together in um, some kind of a conglomeration that uh, white America um, is um, hesitant about, but also, of course, eager to um, exercise power over. Um, so for me, the idea of U.S. empire at this point in, uh, in time was because of the global expansion of the U.S. empire, one of um, going far at the same time that it was about growing up because um, the nation is maturing. Um, children are also, of course, um, growing up. There is no um, 
stopping children to grow up. There is no stopping to um, nations um, from um, growing older and um, becoming more and more um, historical in uh, their own setting. And that means that for me, then empire was this double project of growing up and going far, um, which inevitably uh, then sucked in children into the conversation. Um, um, specifically thinking about US empire in um, my book, what matters to me ultimately was to think about this empire as it looked at itself constantly while it was part of that larger world. And what it meant, um, this um, quote-unquote soul-searching in terms of we are an empire, but we are also a post-colony. So what are we going to do with that? And how are we going to um, have a conversation about it with our children in ways that they are going to accept that this is the future of the nation, basically. And that meant a lot of um, official maps that have been produced explaining the place of empire, but also a lot of cognitive maps that Americans, adults and children came up with. I would say that, um, so my book is concentrated uh, on Quebec, uh, which uh, is uh, was, it was a part of British North America in the middle of 19th century. Uh, and then from 1867, one of the provinces of the Dominion of Canada. Its white population is mostly the result of the French colonization and of the population originating from the British Islands uh, and the United States that settled in the colony especially in Montreal uh, after 70, um, 1760. And during the, the period I, um, I, I researched, the school population of Quebec uh, was mainly divided uh, according to religious affiliation. Mm -hmm. So there was a Catholic majority, which was both Francophone and Anglophone. Mm -hmm. and a Protestant uh, population, mainly Anglophone uh, of various denominations. And then there was waves of immigration uh, that occurred at the turn of the 20th century and that gradually complicated this system. And for sure, there were also um, Black communities in Quebec at that time. There were uh, Indigenous communities. I didn't... Um, included them in the study because uh, when I I um, I did my uh, doctoral project I realized that the um, the interpretation of this story uh, from the perspective of for example indigenous children that were schooled with the same material as white children how to interpret this violence is totally different because they were presented as uh, they were the other. So <laughs> they were not um, uh, they were not learning uh, the world as white children. Uh, so I and for archival uh, archival reasons also this was too much. But um, I decided at it was. Really, at the beginning of my uh, re my doctoral um, uh, studies, that uh, 
because I was talking to my uh, now colleague, David Marin, about uh, Quebec historiography. And, you know, I was a doctoral student. I was like, oh, it's bad for this reason, this reason, <laughs> you know, many critiques. And one of the critiques I had was that the books on the Quebec um, population of, uh, uh, on the Anglophone population of Quebec didn't really put the context of their study in um, the fact that they were surrounded by a French population. Mm -hmm. And the same was true with the French, uh, the, the studies about uh, the French population. Yeah. And I realized I was going to do the same because at first I was going to just look at the French uh, Canadians. And so from this moment, I decided to include the English community in my uh, in my research. So it, it is really uh, a research about the two main community of uh, white settlers in Quebec and in Canada, because for a good part of the study, uh, a lot is it's the same in Ontario. And and that was the best decision I ever made, because this is how I I could see that all this was so transnational and that there was no big differences between the French and the English. And we we tend to to emphasize a lot this difference in the historiography in, in Canada. And so I discovered that it was the same uh, white supremacy uh, racism that was teach to both uh, children. Thanks so much, Catherine. And I think that that's one of the many reasons why I'm so excited that your book is being translated into English. Um, because, yeah, I would say, as you know, our Canadian colleagues will know in, in the historical profession in Canada, this is a big, you know, they talk about, you know, two solitudes and yeah. our Francophone and Anglophone historians reading each other. Not enough, I would say. But yeah. I think there's also I often just this assumption that things are completely different in yeah. these two different cultures and the similarities that you trace in the book and the way that you're able to connect them to these broader kind of transnational discourses about empire, um, racial hierarchies is, yeah, right on. Two thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That, so, that's why it was really important for me to, uh, to make the book uh, translated. Yes, yes. Yeah. No, I'm just so glad that that is happening imminently. Yeah. So the next thing that I would like to ask each of you to do is to, yeah, tell us more about your books. What are the main arguments that you're making? What kinds of sources and archives um, did you consult? Are there any theoretical frameworks that you found to be especially useful? So I'm not sure who might like to go first on this one, but yeah, tell us about your books. I, I'll go. Great. So um, my book is about, so the, the, question, the question was that of otherness. So I decided to look at how schools constructed and um, otherness. So how children was, were taught to recognize uh, some people as others. And so that was the, the question at the start. And the answer of that became a school of racism because I realized that 
uh, I thought that maybe like the English for Canadian, French Canadian and vice versa uh, were, were to be the others. Um, and it was not the case. So I discovered that uh, how um, how they, they learn other. <laughs> so this is really like learning uh, the others, uh, plural. Uh, and so I looked at uh, how from his uh, inception, uh, the school system has taught and endorsed colonial domination and racism. And so the figures of otherness fabricated by the school have allowed generations of Canadians to think of themselves as white and civilized first. And this was the necessary condition for national affirmation. So we have to um, to tell the children that they, they are part of the civilization, they, they are at the top of the racial hierarchy. And so from this position, they can um, claim to be a nation. And this is really important in the context of the settler society that is, um, that is Canada at that time. So they want to be part of this concert of, of nation uh, and uh, they want to have a, uh, a role to play in, uh, in the, the empire uh, system also. Uh, and so my book is really about how uh, in school, but in the different subjects, so not just like in history uh, or in geography, which are for sure um, subject where this question is really present, but also in the uh, um, language learning. So how in so many benign ways, uh, those hierarchies and um, visions of the world were taught to children. So in grammar exercises, in uh, vocabulary exercises, in religious um, uh, learning also. And so all those subjects just kind of created a conversation uh, about this vision of the world. And is it is with some specific vocabulary that we can see that a people is construct as other. And because like the Belgians are not milled, <laughs> but uh, the Ethiopians uh, will will be. So it, it is really um, <laughs> a book that look at how it is done in release specific ways and then how from this on I can see some big figures that were uh, fundamental to the question the construction of Canada as a, a white nation a civilized nation uh, the uh, the Arabs so with all the orientalist uh, discourses the um, the black communities the black peoples uh, with the racial hierarchies and uh, all the discourse about slavery, uh, implicit or explicit. Uh, then, for sure, indigenous people, uh, which is really the kind of the central other in Canadian discourse. Uh, it is the um, it is the figure that is 
necessary for the national narrative to deploy itself because if you take out the indigenous um, figures, there's no hero. So uh, it is really, and if you take out the indigenous violence that is um, uh, narrated in this uh, story, there's no legitimacy for the French settlers or the then English settlers to have taken this um, territory where those children are <laughs> are going to school. Uh, and then uh, there is uh, the Chinese uh, figure that is really central in the missionary mobilization. So uh, I think that that takes a, <laughs> a look about the book. Thank you so much, Mashid. Listening to Catherine, I was thinking like, yeah, my, my book is a lot about self versus other, um, more self than other, because it, it is more about how self is produced through uh, the production of the other, of course, but in spatial terms. So um, my entire book is about um, the cartographic pedagogies of empire. And uh, um, I think the uh, most um, important um, argument they make in my book is that in this very uh, non-linear liaison between childhood and empire, one being about the exercise of power, the other being about dependency or alleged forms of dependency, what we of arrive at basically in a spatial terms is where the child belongs who else belongs to that space who doesn't so a number of questions about the idea of home actually become central especially in, in the 1890s um, because um, a pedagogic model becomes um, refashioned at the end of the century um, the so-called home geography model that um, insists on American children identifying home in the, the most practical day-to-day -day, um, understanding of it, uh, the surroundings um, in uh, rural areas, but also in um, urban centers across the country. And then to do something on top of that, which is to look if they can find homes that are comparable to their own home and by extension to the United States as home across the globe. And that means that there are potential possible mm, replica of home that children could imagine existing elsewhere. Um, and this would have two results. One, that American children could um, feel at home, so to say, if uh, they um, traveled elsewhere or if they learned that the United States, for example, has now an imperial outpost in the Philippines or in the Caribbean. There was a possibility for them to imagine that there are people comparable to them, uh, spaces as safe as their own homes across the globe, and also to address the crisis of national unity back in home because of new waves of migrants coming to the United States. What it meant for white privileged America was confusion fear and um, a sense of we need to erect thicker walls, we need to watch the door, we need to lock it, right? And um, the idea of non-homes existing side by side with homes in the United States resulted in um, 
uh, a lot of um, confusion and fear about what it meant for the United States to be a unified nation, actually. So by accepting that non-homes could exist side by side to homes, uh, at least in my reading of the ultimate outcome was, look, we are a unified nation. And it doesn't matter if there are non-homes um, that fill in the void between the homes the many, many homes that exist across the United States, often occupied by respectable, uh, literate, white, middle, upper middle class um, Anglo-Americans. So uh, there were these two projects that were uh, working at the same time, um, promoted um, as implied somehow by um, this renewed understanding of home geography. And that meant that um, Americans, young and old, um, needed in the 1890s and the decades before and after it to ask where they are, where they are going, as often as they needed to ask who they are becoming. So it was a question of national identity translated in spatial terms, basically, for them. Children uh, were going to encounter these questions through school geography books, um, through um, geographical games that they played, dissected maps um, of different parts of the world, including the United States, but also um, um, as recently colonized spaces as the Philippines, for example. And also, um, as I look at in the um, final two chapters of my book, in their own responses. So I looked at uh, children's letters and children's geographical puzzles um, that they um, um, sent to um, very uh, prominent, well-received uh, children's magazines of the time, St. Nicholas and Harper's Young People, and uh, um, became part of a community that was conversant in the idea of empire um, as citizens and rulers of the world in future, basically. Um, so um, the sources that I looked at were as diverse as um, official um, school geography books um, to um, children's letters that were heavily edited, of course, and then printed in um, St. Nicholas, for example. Um, geographical puzzles, um, which um, in a lot of cases came in the form of very short stories with uh, words taken out of them and replaced by uh, place names from different parts of the world. And then other children had to actually use a map or a world map or um, um, the atlas, for example, in order to find answers to um, those questions in order to complete the um, very short stories that other children had sent to uh, these magazines. Um, you also asked about um, specific theories and concepts that um, um, we might have used in um, writing about the question of um, um, otherness, um, racial hierarchies um, in relationship to empire. And um, I think it is worth mentioning that what I did um, in my uh, project was very much in, um, informed by um, um, the spatial turn, specifically what David Harvey and uh, Frederick Jameson have done. Um, I, I relied um, extensively on the idea of reduction of space uh, in relationship to cognitive mapping and the creation of mental maps, the inaccuracies of them, but also the potential that they have because they are unrecorded, they are um, fluid, 
they constantly change and ultimately they are the best way to discuss children's understanding of um, imperial geopolitics as cartography in progress that are non-linear, extremely personal and intimate, and at the same time translatable into letters and geographical puzzles, for example. Thank you so much. I definitely found myself wanting to, I was trying to solve the puzzles. <laughs> but I think, Catherine, you you have something that you would like to say. So please go for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just remember I did an answer about the theoretical framework. And I think it's going to make some uh, link with what uh, Masha just said. Uh, I based my research on many theories uh, about the other underness of philosophical uh, authors like uh, Emmanuel Levinas or um, uh, Sarah Ahmed was really a big uh, inspiration for my research also. But I think that, um, uh, and what Masha just said about the uh, cognitive cartography, just remember uh, me about how I just saw how the children acquires knowledge about other peoples and start to they they can even if they were from middle uh, like lower classes uh the society they will master that knowledge so they will know what the ind indigenous people were and that gave them a notoriety uh, on this knowledge and ultimately on those peoples uh, because they uh, they acquire this uh, this authority. But uh, I want to hear much about um, script because I know that we both had uh, Robin Bernstein in our book, I think. Uh, and I, I kind of use her theory more about um, appropriation of knowledge by children. So how the children uh, in school, and I, I think our book also overlap on the period. So how uh, all what you said about home geography, I remember I saw this at the end of my period and the last uh, geography textbooks that I, I, I read, uh, it, was, it was really this, uh, this new pedagogy. Uh, so yeah, I want to hear you about script. Yeah, sure. Gladly. Um, I completely forgot uh, mentioning that, of course, Robin Bernstein is there and uh, I continue bringing her material into my classes also and uh, uh, confuse my students with her writing style, which I adore. Yeah, <laughs> the so, same for um, me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so I, I actually relied on um, um, Robin Bernstein's uh, three uh, understandings of script as um going from sort of the entire spectrum of um, what is initially meant by a text, going all the way to appropriation, as you mentioned. And that enabled me to actually write a bit more confidently about what children did with geographic knowledge that was given to them in um, the setting of the American uh, classrooms and do interesting, sometimes wild things with them in the sense of um, 
completely disregarding the notion of home geography or actually thinking about it constantly while writing about their um, family trips to Europe or to Mexico or um, other parts of the world. And for me, um, the idea of a script was um, particularly helpful to um, sit and listen to these children because they did interesting things to the scripts. Um, in one of my chapters where I write about dissected maps, for example, um, toward the end, um, toward the conclusion of that chapter, I um, come back to the idea of the scripts and how children just did whatever they wanted with the initial adult um, inscriptions of these um, dissected maps by turning it around doing a painting uh, on the backside of that dissected map and then playing with it and mm. what that would mean potentially for children to actually completely ignore what American school geography was about. It was about mm. teaching them about the world and where the United States was standing uh, on the surface of this world obviously at the center of it, right? And then children could potentially, I haven't found any sources that gives me um, a dissected map with a, a hand um, drawing on the other side of it, but it is perfectly possible that some children who didn't find geography as fascinating as their teachers or um, um, people who uh, decided social policy in the US or uh, thought about children's politics found. But at the same time, they were playing with the same map. So um, it was like, the map is there, but look at me, I am going to do other things with it. I have the mm -hmm. possibility to actually turn it into something completely different. And again, that was what um, Robin Bernstein's understanding of a script and deviation from it, performances uh, that are always coming with a slight difference from the um, quote unquote original was particularly productive, actually. Mm. It made me think of one archive I remember uh, it and it's it's also a story about the problem of archives uh -huh. because in I was in a, a small regional cent archive centers and I just found in a family phone uh, an exercise book uh, from a little guy maybe ten years old uh, and it was really messy like really really messy uh, and I can see in this archive boredom. Because this young boy just wrote on one uh, pages his name like 50 times. Maurice, 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 Maurice. And so I was really in front of this uh, boredom. And at the same time, in this exercise book, I saw uh, um, maps uh, and I saw some story about cowboy uh, chasing Indians and stuff. And so it was really kind of authentic of what this guy was doing in class. And at the same time, the uh, archive archivist told me that she almost um, put that in the garbage when she received the uh, phone because she was like, oh, this is some messy exercise book. There's no interest in that. And I was like, no, <laughs> this is so precious and Fantastic. oh my yeah. gosh yep <laughs> awesome reminds me of what um patricia crane does in reading children she also looks mm. at um children's doodles and uh what's potentially they um they mean in um 
children owning the book uh, more than yes. reading the book, actually, and the intimacies that are involved in that. Um, that's a fantastic mm. book, of course, to always go back to and again, confuse the students with. I'm really so thankful that both of you that um, that Robin Bernstein has come up in this conversation, um, because as I was thinking about what we might talk about today, I was imagining the next time I get to teach my course about the history of childhood, and I could imagine assigning parts of each of your books, I would say probably ones that have lots of, you know, there's some illustrations of, I would say, you know, pretty, I would say, yeah, just pretty, some pretty awful racist stuff that was being, you know, served up to children through games, um, school textbooks. Um, and so I was thinking to myself that it might be interesting, uh, challenging, good for my students to read your work alongside Bernstein. And especially this, she has that article that is in PMLA. It's part of, um, uh, parts of it are in Racial Innocence, but it's where she's talking about Black, about white children and Black dolls. And I know that actually, Mashid, uh, when you mentioned Frances Hodgson Burnett in your book, that, that as a child, Frances Hodgson Burnett is one of these white American girls who is playing with the scripts um, that she had, that her culture had given her, right? This is after the Civil War. There's no more slavery in the United States, but she is, you know, whipping and lynching these Black dolls. So I think that you know, so and I think that the way that each of you use these child produced sources in your books really, I think, raises, you know, these important issues that you've both just been talking about. So these kids, they were doing more than, you know, they're doing more than learning to divide the world, which is, you know, John Walensky's old chestnut from the late 1990s. They're producing the world, um, they're consuming it, but they're also producing, they're active in producing, reproducing racial categories, racial hierarchies. But as you said, there are also these, you know, sometimes unintended consequences of doodles, boredom, preferring to make a painting on the back of the pedagogical object that was supposed to teach you about your, uh, you know, place on top of the racial hierarchy and America's place in the world. So, Mashid, you also mentioned early on when you were talking about your journey uh, to writing this book, and this is something that happened to me as a graduate student as well, uh, in a program where there weren't a lot of people writing about children, that you had to do some convincing of yeah. of people who I would say who maybe saw thought that the work that they were doing was more serious uh, <laughs> than the history of childhood. And so, what I have found in my own work on childhood uh, and colonialism, and I think comes through in both of your books as well, is that the history of schooling, informal education, childhood, like this is the history of empire. This is geopolitics. This is, you know, violence in a bunch of different ways. So this is, this is, you can't understand these big serious questions without looking at young people, I would say. So I'm wondering if there's anything that you folks might like to say about yeah, what historians of, you know, adult subjects, what uh, 
yeah, what they, what it might be good for them to take away from or learn about, learn from the history of childhood and education. Um, but I could start. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. What what you said, I was just nodding frantically at my end, um, thinking of how that uh, convincing others ultimately resulted in me convincing myself. Also, I remember that I wrote um, a letter to the editor of uh, St. Nicholas, an imaginary letter, but in my own hand uh, on a piece of paper. Um, and I think I used green ink for some reason that I am five and um, I am almost literate and a number of topics that many of the, the children who used to write to St. Nicholas would actually bring up in their letters. And then on the flip side of the same sheet of paper, then I wrote another letter to um, uh, the editor of St. Nicholas that I am 28 years old. Uh, I am a historian of the US and I am actually looking at these letters that you edited and printed in your um, uh, magazine um, in order to analyze them in relationship to empire. I still have that piece of paper somewhere in my own very extensive personal um, archive from the PhD time. And um, it's really fascinating to look at that moment now, more than uh, 10 years ago, of how other people's hesit hesitation about uh, childhood and empire actually translated into me hesitating the whole project and how I needed to also convince myself that I am capable of doing it because there is a child in me who is my own very personal past and who has opinions about politics growing up in a very particular setting in which politics was just in your face on a daily basis and then translating that into um, doing an American studies project basically. But going back to uh, the question that you asked, I think one of the most important aspects of um, the study of childhood in relationship to empire is how um, imperial pedagogies um, fail because uh, of a number of reasons. Children turn politics into fun, as we already talked about, because they are bored, because they absolutely don't care about geopolitical concerns, or actually they revolt against it. So imperial pedagogies have their own limitations and they write their limitations as uh, they are producing scripts of success scripts through which they hope the empire actually sustains itself. And that is one really fascinating and really important aspect of the study of um, colonialism, imperialism, and racial hierarchies. And the other one is um, that in the case of the US, um, through this conflict of interests between empires and what they are producing, um, self and other are also being produced at exactly the same time. So self is not produced at um, um, a certain point and in a certain setting, which is separate from um, or lags behind or forward uh, in contrast to the other. They are being produced at the same time in the same place. And a lot of these places are places that um, Catherine and I have looked at in our books. And that is um, school books, games, um, concepts, pedagogic concepts, such as home geography or um, 
different types of scripts the children themselves produce. So the empire actually writes scripts for its own failure by producing scripts that are actually trying to propagate it and to to make it more successful than it already is. And that for me is one of the most important aspects of it because empires inevitably fail. They are time bound, they change, they might survive. For example, the US empire has in other terms using another language, but ultimately that um, the transformation also is part of the limits of the initial scripts of empire um, because of how it writes um, its others through the scripts that it is producing. And that is um, really timely for us to look at because of all that is going on um, in the US and across the globe as we are talking to each other today. And I'm sure that's, um, that would be the same in the Canadian context as well, that racial hierarchies are not behind us. We think about intersectionality more prominently today, and it has helped us um, talk about nuances more effectively, but it does not mean that the question of race is over. It is never over. This is also true. <laughs> we just kept nodding all the way you were talking. Uh, I would add some stuff about, but I really agree with all what you said. Um, I would say that you know, in Quebec right now, there's a lot of uh, discussions about uh, systemic racism. And we have a government who don't want to recognize that there is uh, systemic racism in Quebec. And I think what looking at children and this education um, can help understand is this is not just this has not just come from the sky. <laughs> I, I mean, we can look at the past and see all those racist laws and racist Uh, events and all those stuff people have have had to be trained in this ideology and I think this is what I saw also in my book it's that this ideology is not moral and so you have to convince children can see that and they can And they can be puzzled about how um, this ideology is not, in fact, in in uh, it's in contradiction with the the Christian uh, message. And so, school have to teach them that this is morally leg legitimate to conquer, to dispossess to murder <laughs> and so I think um, and those children grow up they became adults they became those Indian agents and I mean not all of them but so they I think this um, and I I I have this um, I mean readers tell me that don't tells me that that they kind of understand so much stuff with my book and what I find kind of fascinating and at the same time kind of rewarding also is that I receive emails from readers that are not at all in the university settings 
they are people who grew up in Quebec in the 50s and 60s. So this is not the period I studied. And they write to me and they say, this is the school I went to. And this book has made so much sense to stuff that I kind of, I was adopting what they told me, they told us in school. I thought that maybe that was bullshit, but you know, I was a seven years old kid. And I know that in Quebec in the 50s, there were so much teaching about um, the Jesuit uh, martyrs uh, during the New France uh, period. And this was uh, gore. This was totally gore. And readers told me about that. They told me about how they were traumatized with this, uh, those images. And so I think it also, it can, and as Mashid said, it shows also how children are complicit. They're not victims of this school that teach them how to be racist, but at the same time, they are not also the agents of this ideology. They are not the, um, the first promoters, but they are complicit in this. And I think it helps um, take the focus back on the system and not just the like, who is guilty? Uh, yeah. Thank you so much, uh, both of you. That I've just, yeah, I think I put in the I put in the com in the chat. I've got goosebumps from listening to that. And I have to say that you know I didn't grow up in Quebec or go to school in Quebec, but I went to French immersion school in Winnipeg in the prairies in the 1980s, and all of our pedagogical materials came from Quebec. And I had not really thought about third grade and the massive amount of time that we spent on Les Inuits. <laughs> Just, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, so you've helped me to make sense of my my own educational experience. Um, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So I'm I'm conscious of time and uh, I also I think that I think that this is a conversation that could go on in energizing and fruitful ways for for ages. Um, so I want I think I'm going to ask you folks just one more question and then we can leave people wanting more, which they will find by reading your books and your other forthcoming publications. So um, what are you working on now? <laughs> I can start with, uh, in short, Scripts of Empire. I actually, um, you know, looking back at all that I have done, I realized at some points that what I have been consistently interested in has been the idea of a scripts of empire, what empires mm. produce, um, what others produce in of response to an engagement with empire. Mm. And that means that um, in my um, the first phase of my postdoc, I looked at uh, representations of U.S. empire in um, digital games and looking at uh, digital games as a scripts of empire, um, the ways that U.S. empire was represented in um, historical uh, video games or when it was absent from them um, and what that meant about public understandings of uh, the United States as not an empire. 
Um, currently, uh, for my um, uh, so-called habilitation project slash second book, uh, which is um, one of the requirements before a professorship in Germany, what I am doing is looking at a, a very different type of, of scripts of empire, and that is um, poetry of erasure. So it's um, a range of examples of um, poetry from 21st century, particularly uh, that um, have been produced uh, post 9-11, not necessarily about 9-11, but most of them are um, in conversation with uh, what happens um, in the wake of um, the um, so-called war on terror. And uh, um, poets um, slash activists or only poets or um, visual artists have um, produced this fascinating, really difficult um, visually and conceptually uh, type of poetry, um, which replicates um, redaction by the state. So they are redacted texts, which are oftentimes uh, created, quote unquote, um, um, at the back of um, actual historical, political, legal documents um, pertaining to um, genocide, pertaining to war, pertaining to um, atrocities that happened during the war, for example. And um, they use these um, documents as um, source material for uh, producing erasure poetry. So when you look at them, they um, these um, uh, examples of poetry that I look at um, replicate very much, very closely um, uh, censored political documents, but they actually are poetry. And they talk back to these historical, um, political, legal documents in really fascinating, interesting ways. So this is my um, current project. And again, it is focused on the United States, but then I have flashed forward to the 21st century. Thank Great. you. <laughs> and uh, I, I will uh, start with this word erasure. I think that can kind of uh, illustrate it, uh, my new project also, <laughs> because I'm working right now. I, I kind of put my project on Father Lacombe, who is a 19th century missionary uh, on the side, because 19th century, we can all, always go back there. <laughs> But I have now a project on uh, the mid mid twentieth century, um, the story of the Only Childhood Association, which is a story that I I start to tell in my book uh, when it it began in the nineteenth century. But it was a, a Catholic uh, pontifical uh, missionary society that aimed so to to convert children in uh, non-Christian uh, regions by uh, wanting, wanted, uh, wanting Catholic children to give money, so just some little pennies. And in the, in the 20th century, uh, until the 1960s, until the Quiet Revolution in Quebec, it was so much big, it, like, it was huge. Every uh, Quebec, French Canadian Quebec children have give some money to buy. The, it was the, the term they used to buy a Chinese uh, ch uh, child uh, in the 50s. So all the people that grew up in the 50s, they remember that. But there's no <laughs> historical research on that, like zero. And we talk about an association that in 
1960, they issued a periodical that was issued at 250,000 copies in Quebec. I mean, in French Canada. I mean, this is wow. <laughs> this is like that's huge. staggering. And, yeah, and it talked so much about race relation in Quebec, and so it's an eration erasure in our collective collective memory. So I'm working on that with many like kind of aspect uh, children, but also um, collective memory. So what can looking at this history um, elves explain in uh, today's society in Quebec, but also white womanhood. So how white women were presented as the mother of racialized children and how can this affect until now all the protective uh, um, societies for children all the social services in uh, in the province and all this racialized community that children are mostly affected by this uh, placement and stuff like that and mm -hmm. so i want to write an essay so another form of writing and maybe a, a theater play oh, <laughs> so that, oh, that, to engage a, a conversation in the society, society also about yes, this wonderful story. cool yeah. yes oh fantastic well selfishly i can't wait to to <laughs> to to watch and hear about how these projects are developing so thank you so much again for sharing your uh, really pathbreaking research, research <laughs> with us today. Um, so yeah, thanks again, Thank you two. You. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Uh, it was yeah. wonderful. Great yeah. questions, great company. It was fun. Thanks. Yeah, it's a privilege. Thanks. <laughs>